Good morning, church. If you would go ahead and grab your Bible, begin turning to the book of Judges. If you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you run into Joshua, those first five, that's the Pentateuch, Penta five. Then you go to Joshua, and then number seven in the book, in the Bible, would be the book of Judges. That's where we're going to start today. Before we do, a couple things. As Pastor Mark has already said, thank you so much for your love, for your prayers. Continue to keep Kathy, Bart, and Beth in your prayers as well. Uh, talk to Bart this morning. They've continued to make it, which is what you do. But they've, they've done wonderful. Thank you for your prayers, for your outpouring of love on them over this past week as well. Now, going into today, we picked up last week with an introduction to this man, Gideon, that we are studying. This man whom God called to be a leader and a valiant warrior. Now, if you ask Gideon, remember, he kind of looked around him and he said, in no way am I qualified to be such a man. But our focus last week was centered not on how Gideon felt about himself, that wasn't important, but instead we came into an agreement that it was more important how God sees Gideon. It is also more important how God sees us. Understanding how God sees us, then it sheds light on the sinful way that we often see ourselves. We see ourselves as fearful, as worrisome. We see ourselves as weakened. But hopefully through God's Word and knowing who God is and what He says about us, we will develop more confidence, not in ourselves, not in our own flesh, but through the Holy Spirit that gets us through difficult times. One of the elements of the story that we touched on, we didn't go into too, too much detail, but at the end of the text last week, Gideon actually does give a sacrifice indeed for the Lord. He may not have done it and fully understood what he was doing, but it was offered. It was symbolically showing his surrender to God. And also surrendering to the charge that God had on his life. For Gideon to be used in order to defeat the Midianites that had been plaguing, that had been going after the Israelites and taking their food and taking their resources. Gideon was beginning to show signs of coming around to the words of God, what God had said. God was ready to put Gideon to work, even if Gideon didn't see himself as ready to go. And that's where our text picks up today. Let's begin reading chapter 6, starting at verse 25, and we will read down to verse 32. Here we go. On that very night, the same night that he's talking with God, on that very night the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull and a second bull seven years old. Then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on top of this mound. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. 
So Gideon took ten of his male servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. When the men of the city got up in the morning, they found Baal's altar torn down. The Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull offered up on the altar that had been built. They said to each other, Who did this? After they made a thorough investigation, they said, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son. He must die because he tore down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead Baal's case for him? Would you save him? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead his own case because someone tore down his altar. That day, he was called Jerobel since Joash said, let Baal contend with him because he tore down his altar. Let's pray together. Oh God, We are weak. We are broken. You are our provider, our comforter, our peace, and our rest. Father, as we dive into Your Word, God, change us. Give us the desire not to be the same as when we entered. Renew in us, Lord, Your goal, Your purpose, the advancement of Your kingdom, and make us obedient, Lord. Out of love and devotion as a living sacrifice to You. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Kicking off right into it. Point number one, we've got to get to first things first. Can't go to the second thing first. We've got to go first things first. Now most, if not all of you, are probably familiar with this idiom. This isn't nothing new. I'm not speaking anything out of turn. It's been around for a long time, so long that we are not really sure of its origin but we don't really need its origin. This idiom, first things first, it's been the title of self-help books, it's been the title of songs, albums, poems, even TV shows. But the idiom is used, why? Prioritizing an order of events or having a sequence. Putting the most important event that needs to take place first as its top priority. That is what we see from the text so far. Connecting back to it. Here you go. Before God is going to use Gideon to kick out the Midianites, which is what he's called him to do, Gideon must first take care of some ongoing issues within his own house, within his own self. As your Israelite people, 
We're going through this cycle of falling away from the one true God, Yahweh. We've seen this time and time again. That's what's going on in the first five chapters of Judges. We are exposed. We understand that the Israelites are exposed to, and they are cozying up with various idols and false gods of the time and of the culture that are surrounding them. So for this point in history, the false god of the time is named Baal. He is the most prominent and the location of the Israelites because of the Canaanite people around him. If you were a Canaanite, more than likely you were worshiping Baal. But why was Baal most prominent at this point in time? Baal was the false god that controlled the weather. As far as an Asherah pole being beside it, being accompanying the altar, seemingly it was understood in this culture that these two false gods work together. Traditionally, Baal would be the chief god of the weather, but then Asherah was a female goddess that would be in control of the same thing. So it was easy for Baal and Asherah to be the prominent false gods because theoretically these were the gods that would benefit the people the most. It would benefit their wallet, their dinner table, their stomach, and the rest of their family. And there's continuity here. Two weeks ago, when we started this series, we saw the Israelites cry out finally to the God Yahweh. Why? Because he thought they thought that He could save them. It was only then, when they were at their worst, when they realized they could do nothing else, that finally they said, you know, I remember these stories from way back when, that there was this other God that we used to pray to, and supposedly it was this God that got us out of Egypt. So if we've got this Midianite people that are oppressing us, maybe if we prayed to this same God that we used to pray to before, maybe this will be the God that will help us. Well, in the meantime, while we need the weather to be good, while we need a good crop and while we need a good supply of that, we'll continue to pray to Baal and Asherah just in case. Their priorities put in place the gods that they would worship. So you can make the argument, even though the Israelites, including Gideon's family, even though they're setting up altars to God, even or to Baal, even though they're trying to cry out to God, who is it that they're really worshiping? Themselves. Themselves. For their own benefit. Not for the glory of God Almighty. And who is it then pinpointing is Gideon the most concerned with? Verse 27, But because he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. Gideon's no different than the rest. And people have tried to argue for Gideon that, well, Gideon knew what the outcry would be, so he did it at night because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to do it. It's the whole purpose of the story that, look, whether he does it or not, God is going to make sure that it's going to be done. So I don't buy that as much. I see Gideon as fearful. He too is more concerned with himself and how others will respond to what he's doing 
than the task that is at hand to follow God. So we must ask ourselves often, are there idols in your life? We've got to go beyond telling ourselves, no, because there's not an image that I've made that I bow down to. No, I don't have any false gods or false depictions of God that are in my home that I pray to. But no, sometimes we've got to understand that's not really the idol we've got to worry about so much. It's more of the comforts, the traditions that we consider non-negotiable in our lives. Why would anything become elevated to this level where it's non-negotiable, where we are unwilling to change and unwilling to make any sacrifices because it benefits us to do them, to keep them. Worldly comforts and pleasures make us feel good. Duh! So we chase the elements of the world that won't last for minuscule moments of contentment or relief. Look at me. The idol itself may be comfort that we worship. The idol itself that we worship. We don't have an idol of comfort carved out. We don't bow to it in our houses. But we will not go out of our way to make ourselves uncomfortable. So if comfort is our priority and everything else is secondary to it, it becomes an idol. Bottom line. An idol is weakness. We must be honest with ourselves. And as the Lord convicts, we got to start doing some chopping so the Lord can use us for His work. Also, you've got to ask, is there an area of your life where you're trying to meet God halfway? Here's what I mean. God, I know that You want me to go in this direction. Well, God, you know I really want to go in this direction. So I'll tell you what, God, we'll just split the difference and I'll just do door number three right in the middle. Man, that sounds good. That bargaining works. You got one direction, you got another direction. Well, we'll just split the difference and go down the middle. Which is exactly what Gideon tries to do by achieving this feat at night. Trying to compromise. Truly in disobedience. You've got to remember, pretty sure I've shared this with you before, when it comes to God, we are either fully obedient in surrender or not. We're either fully obedient in surrender or we're not. Partial obedience is complete rebellion. If at any point we tell God, God, I'll do it, but I'll do it my way. We are no longer doing it the way that God wants us to. But even when we attempt to follow God, we can always expect repercussions, good or bad. And that takes us to point number two. The escalation of surrender. That sounds fancy, doesn't it? The escalation of surrender. Now, most of you probably don't know 
But growing up and even now, I am a huge Batman fan. Batman is my favorite superhero. Man, we've got pictures of when I'm three and four years old and I'm dressed up like Batman, not even for Halloween, but just because, okay? Even on into adulthood, I'm dressed up like Batman. But anyways, now, I especially love the Christopher Nolan movies of the mid to late, early 2000s, whatever you want to call it. And one part in particular where they discuss escalation, this is in Batman Begins, Right at the end of the movie, Batman's having a conversation with Commissioner Gordon. They're up on top of police headquarters. They've got the bat signal going. Batman shows up, and Commissioner Gordon asks him, he says, when it comes to the bad guys of Gotham City, end of the movie, Gordon asks Batman this. He says, what about escalation? Batman says, escalation. Gordon says, we start carrying semi-automatics. They, the bad guys, buy automatics. We start wearing Kevlar. They buy armor-piercing rounds. Gordon looks at Batman and he says, and you are wearing a mask and jumping off rooftops. Now take this guy, and he pulls out a file and he hands it to Batman. He says, this guy, armed robbery, double homicide, and he's got a taste for the theatrics the same way that you do. Oh yeah, and he leaves a calling card. So Gordon reaches into his pocket and hands Batman a piece of evidence, and what is it? It's a playing card with the depiction of a joker. Basically, what Commissioner Gordon is telling Batman is, man, you're doing a whole lot of good for the city. We understand what you're doing, and man, you're going to all kinds of lengths to do it. However, because you're doing it, the bad guys are also going to start doing it. You've got a Batman that's created. What has Batman created? The Batman has created the joker on the other side of it. Gordon's point. There's always going to be a reaction do any action. So after Gideon accomplishes his task, even though he wanted it to be done in secret, he wanted it to be done at night when nobody would know, it obviously did not stay secret for long. You go to verse 29. After a quick investigation, there is no doubt, everybody knows it, it is free to the public that this was Gideon and Gideon tore these things down. What's the reaction? This community is ready to kill Gideon killed him for the heresy of committing this act against the false god Baal. That's how strong this culture was against the god Yahweh. Even with, get this, even with Gideon's partial obedience with his rebellion, God was still able to use the works for His will to be accomplished. But when we begin committing ourselves to following the will of God, truthful obedience, we've got to expect an escalation from the world. When we follow Jesus, there will be pushback. Do not be caught by surprise. Here's a crazy thought. Be encouraged when the world decides to brush you back against what you're doing for Jesus. Now, don't allow yourself to be hardened because of this pushback from the world. It doesn't mean that we need to become indignant or hateful because of the way the world treats us. We must stay softened to our testimony that we are saved by grace and we're different because of Jesus. Jesus says the world will hate you on account of what He did. That doesn't mean that we are to hate the world back in the same way. But in John 15, 17, we are encouraged to be known by 
our love. Why does the world hate us? Because we are known by our biblical definition of love. Jesus goes on to say in John 15, Now they have seen and hated both me and my Father, but this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. The world doesn't need a reason to hate us for following Jesus. Doesn't need one. They do. Regardless, we are to be known by our love. Now, we got to look at our faith. Has there ever been a time where you've been backed into a corner, questioned, and there's been an escalation of any kind, maybe not even to death, but an escalation towards you because of your faith? I don't even necessarily mean a persecution, because I think we've watered that down or overused that word at times, but have you honestly been open about your faith before and someone has pushed back against it? I don't mean to say this for you to question your faith, but if not, how come? If you've never been in a situation like this, how come? Are you fearful? Are you even more fearful than Gideon was? Be honest, but if so, what kind of faith is that? Hear me. We live in a time where more than ever, boldness is needed. And I've harped at various points about the differences between boldness and brashness. Boldness is not arrogance or punching down as it may be put today. But in your boldness, are you known for your love as the world escalates against you? Third thing, because of what Gideon does, we see some unforeseen consequences. Something that we did not expect to happen has happened as a result of what Gideon has did for the Lord, seemingly. And I don't want to add to the text I don't want to put anything in the story that isn't there. There are some things of this story that are open-ended and we've got to leave it that way. But I do believe that this is worth camping out on. The idol was put together and built by Gideon's father, Joash. Right? That's what the text says. We don't know too much about Joash other than he's Gideon's father. He's pretty wealthy, even though, if you remember, Gideon said last week that, oh, we really don't have a whole lot. We're the weakest of the weak and the worst of the worst. Well, now we know that's not quite the case. But when the idol comes down and the people of the community are ready to go after Gideon, they show up to talk to Joash, and it is Joash that actually sticks up for his son. We wouldn't think too much about this, but it's a bold statement for Joash. It was his idol. This was obviously his belief. These are obviously people that know him and know this belief of his. It is bold for Joash to speak out against this idol that he seemingly professed faith in. And contending against the crowd that if Baal is a real God, 
then Bell can just take care of Gideon on his own. This kicks the can down the road at least for a little while. Making such a statement, obviously this is to save the life of his son. But what does it do for the faith of Joash? We can't answer that, but it's something to think about. This reminded me of another story that I've been told. Y'all know that I'm an 80s baby, but y'all also know my folks and that I was raised on plenty of 60s culture. So, plenty of you in this room, similar to the way that I've been, I was raised on the Andy Griffith Show. And there's an episode where Andy's son, Opie, gets himself into some trouble. Seemingly, he has created an imaginary friend, Mr. McBeavy. Now, Opie gets into trouble because this imaginary friend of his seemingly is being used as a lie for Opie to get out of some work. Finally, it comes to the point that Andy has got to address the lying. The interaction between Andy and Opie goes something like this. Ope, uh, remember the fun you was having this morning galloping around the, blackyard, or the backyard on Blackie, an imaginary horse that Opie's also made up? We was both enjoying that little game. Of course, now, now the truth is, they, they never was any real Blackie. That's just something that you made up. Is that right? Well, about, to, about this Mr. McBeavy, maybe the same thing happened there. Maybe you, uh, maybe, maybe you made him up too, just for fun, and, and they, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is using a Mr. McBeavy to get out of work and to explain things that seem to come from nowhere. Oh, they, uh, there comes a time when you have to stop the play acting and tell the truth. And that time's now. Right now. After some back and forth, Andy ready to punish Opie. Opie begs with his dad, Don't you believe me, Paul? Don't you believe me? Well, needless to say, Andy doesn't punish Opie right away, but still unsettled, he goes downstairs where he has another interaction with his deputy, the one, the only, Barney Fife. Andy comes downstairs and he looks at Barney and just says, I told him I believed him. And Barney, oh, that just rubs him the wrong way. You told him you believed but But Andy, what he told you is impossible. Andy says, well, a whole lot of times I've asked him to believe things that, to his mind, must have seemed just as impossible. Barney says, oh, but Andy, describing Mr. McBeavy, his silver hat, the jingling, the smoke from his ears. What about all that? And he says, oh, I don't know, Barn. Guess it's a time like this when you're asked to believe something that just don't seem possible. That's the moment that decides whether you got faith in somebody or not. Barney says, yeah but how can you explain it all? And he says, I can't. But you do believe in Mr. McBeavy? And he pauses and he says, no, no, no. But I do believe in Opie. Fast forward again, Andy's still upset by the whole event, goes off to the place where seemingly 
Mr. McBeavy lives and walks among the trees. <laughs> and he proceeds to meet him face to face, proving that Opie was telling the truth the entire time. I tell you all that to say this. I can't say that Joash came to faith in God. The text doesn't tell us that. It is only speculation, but as we speculate, I'm confident to say that Joash believed enough in Gideon so God used a broken, torn, ripped apart vessel like Gideon in order to at least raise some question in a man with wealth like Joash. Unintended consequences. Gideon had no idea the ramifications that his actions would have on his own father. But let us be reminded what Joash means. We're told in the text that Gideon receives a new name, Jerobel. Let Baal contend with him. But remember what Joash's name stands for. Yahweh gives. Yahweh quickens. And Yahweh bestows. Even in Gideon's partial obedience, disobedience, and fear, God used Gideon to work in the lives of others. We don't know that work that God will perform when He calls us to do something. We don't know the outcome. And because we don't know the outcome, too often we choose not to follow at all. We're never guaranteed an outcome. And because we're not guaranteed an outcome, we choose not to follow at all. Missing out on seeing God's unintended consequences. Here's the big idea. At the risk of sounding somewhat cliche, doesn't matter. God uses broken vessels that continuously seek surrender to His will. God uses broken vessels. What in the world's a broken vessel? You're looking at one, and I'm looking at a whole bunch of them. God uses broken vessels that continuously seek surrender to His will. Well, Kyle, that's still awfully open-ended. Yeah, I know it. And I refer back to give a little better understanding to one of my personal favorite hymns. Have Thine own way, Lord. Have Thine own way. Jeremiah 18, Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I'm waiting, yielded, and still. What does it mean to seek surrender? Seeking surrender means tearing down weaknesses, tearing down idols in our lives as God convicts. Seeking surrender means showing love as the world pushes back against your faith. Seeking surrender means praising God for the unintended consequences that only He could orchestrate when we questioned it all together. With that, I'm going to ask the band to come on up. And I want to ask you, 
Are you seeking surrender? Has there been first true surrender in your life? Here's what I mean. True surrender in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not that you've just come to church, not that you've been to church your whole life, but no, have you confessed, have you professed before man and others around you that Jesus Christ is perfect, that He died for your sins because you are a sinner, that He was perfect and did not deserve this type of death, but died for the benefit of sinners. And you've confessed Him as Lord and Savior. You've committed to living a life of following Him. If you're unsure of this, eternity's on the line. To profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is to receive the Holy Spirit, having God living within you, directing your path so that you can better seek His will for your life. To reject, to push back from that truth, is to reject Jesus and potentially spend eternity in hell apart from the love of God. If you're here today and you can affirm all those things, yes, I have surrendered to Jesus. Yes, I am a believer. Would you ask God, God, reveal idols to me in my life, even if it be comfort. Would you ask God, God, make me uncomfortable. Would you ask God, Lord, let the Holy Spirit build up the fruit of love in me so that I may be known to a godless world by my love. Would you ask God to show you unintended consequences so that you may praise and worship God in the works that He has performed? Would you humble yourself, understanding yourself to be a broken weakened vessel ready to be used by a perfect God. Let's pray together. Lord, it's a difficult text because we don't see idols today in the same way that we read about them. Lord, it's a difficult text because the world seemingly is always pushing against us. Forgive us, God, that we as the church have grown comfortable, willing only to do the very least expected of us and calling it obedience. Lord, You've called us to be more. You've called us to step out in faith to be known for our love amongst the people who are loveless, who are godless. Even here in Cartersville, Georgia. God, we say often that You are the God of all things and that everything that happens will work for Your honor and glory. Then shame on us, God. Or we would rather remain comfortable than to push forward. Be bold in our faith with the expectation of seeing unintended consequences that only You could put together. Lord, forgive us. Renew us, Lord. Create within us a repentance, a turning away from these actions 
so that we would be a people that act in surrender to You. Lord, we love You. Thank You for the opportunity we have to continue in worship right now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you so much for listening to Grace Baptist Cartersville podcast. If you would like more of Grace Baptist Cartersville, make sure you check out our GBC Young Adults podcast. Also, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and our services on YouTube.